You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Well, happy Easter. Yeah, you can reply. Happy Easter. Wonderful. Well, well just, isn't it just the best time of the Christian calendar? You know, Jesus is always alive. He will be as alive next Sunday as he is today. But isn't there something wonderful about coming and focusing together on the matchless message of the cross? That Jesus died for our sins, that he took upon himself your sin and your shame, my sin and my shame, and he took it away. And then on the third day, it's good news, and then on the third day, he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures, and he reigns forever. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? It is wonderful, truly incredible. Yesterday I I read this uh, uh, post from Paul Scanlon on his Instagram. Do follow us on our Instagram, by the way. We try and post some things going on in the life of the church. Uh, He said this, uh, Easter is not a celebration of religion. It's a warning to religion. It says death, hell and the grave couldn't hold him. And neither can religion. And it says to all the religious gatekeepers that the cross belongs to humanity. The cross belongs to humanity, not not religion, not even to the church. Easter is about God's extravagant love. And he says, and I pray that this Easter millions will bypass the religious gatekeepers and find their way to Jesus. He's not trying to keep anyone out of heaven. He's trying to get people into heaven. I believe this. Who believes that? This is what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Can we say first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's been said before, but I I don't tire of saying it. There are five main world religions that are centered on the life or teachings of a particular figure. Judaism is founded on Abraham who was gathered to his people and died peacefully. The Old Testament records full of years at the age of 175. Confucianism centers on the teaching of Confucius who died in China age 71 in the arms of his favorite wife. Buddhism centers on Siddhartha Gautama, better known as Buddha, who died of dysentery and was said to die, I quote, with that utter passing away in which nothing whatever remains behind. Islam was founded on the teaching of Muhammad, who died age 62 on the 8th of June, 632 AD, at the home of one of his 11 wives, and his tomb is in Medina and visited regularly by his followers. And Christianity is founded on Jesus Christ, but there is no tomb to visit. Because he conquered the grave and he rose again and his tomb is empty and he ascended alive into heaven and his followers say that he lives in them. Amen. I want to speak this morning on the intimacy of Easter, the intimacy of Easter. My point is really simple and it's this, that Easter is not intended primarily to be celebrated. Even though it is fully fitting that we do celebrate, Easter is intended to be appropriated. 
Easter is not intended to be some celebration that we would look at what Jesus did and applaud it, but that we would enter in and appropriate and realize for ourselves like the most extravagant gift ever given, that it would be unwrapped and it would be embraced by us, the recipients of the gift. Easter is meant to be intimate. Easter is meant to get into your space, into your world, under your skin. We're meant to know and believe and experience and taste and grasp and grab hold of this truth that Christ died for us and also that Christ was raised for us. Every four years, the Olympics comes around and most of us watch the Olympics on TV and some of us have been to the Olympics. Some of us, when the Olympics came to London 2012, we went and we didn't just watch the Olympics, we were at the Olympics. But if you compete in the Olympics, you're classed as an Olympian. You move from being an observer to a participator. And I want us to understand that Easter is not to be observed, though we observe it. It's not to be celebrated, though we celebrate it. It is, be, it is to be participated in. It is that we would enter in, that we would understand and receive the message that Christ died for us, and we would enter into the fullness of his resurrection life. We would experience, if you will, the intimacy of Easter, not something that is far off. Now, I thank God he changed my life. You know, I, I grew up going occasionally to high church, and I don't spit on any form of church, but my experience of going to one of the country's cathedrals on high days and holidays where there was incense and the gospel was sung in Latin and the choirs, it was all very, very beautiful. But for me, this God that was worshipped was so far beyond reach. And I, I gathered this belief in him, but he was beyond my access. He was, he was way beyond knowing. And then I discovered the truth of the gospel, that he came that he would be known. That the cross is that he would be known. He came that we might enter right in to his space, that he invites us in by the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection. He designed it that Easter would not be distant, but would be an intimate experience for us. And maybe you're here today, maybe you've been brought by a family member, maybe you don't know the intimacy of Easter, but let me say there is a wide open invitation to you, even today, to experience the reality that Christ died for you and that Christ lives for you. Of course, there are those who don't grasp Easter at all. They have no understanding. It passes them by the world we live in. Uh, it, enough the case for Christmas, but even more so, I think people don't understand the meaning of Easter anymore. Tesco got into trouble this week. I don't know if you saw they advertised cheap beer by saying Good Friday just got better. And then they had to pull it down and issue an apology and they just acknowledged it was out of complete ignorance in their marketing department. That nobody there really understood what Easter was about. Wow, what an acknowledgement. This is in our nation and there may be people in this room today, in this service, in our second service, who just don't understand anything of the truth of Easter and may all come to know the truth of it. But it's also my observations that many of us as Christians, we carry a deep personal identification with the cross. We understand somehow that Christ died for us. 
we, we understand, we're here on Friday, then these crossbeams, do come and have a look if you weren't here. These crossbeams, where we, people wrote things down and nailed them as part of our reflective service on Friday. And that sense of, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking my sin and my shame. And there's an intimacy around the cross. We understand that Christ died for us, but do we understand that he rose for us? Do we understand that that this was not that he died for us, but he was vindicated for himself? It was not merely that he took our sin, that personal engagement is at the cross, but the resurrection was purely for his own vindication. Now, now, don't don't hear me wrong. The, The resurrection validates his ministry. It validates his message. It validates his identity. You have to look at all the evidence like Lord Darling, the ex-Lord Chief Justice of England, who looked at all the evidence and, and said, if you weigh it all up, positive and negative, circumstantial and factual, you have to come to the conclusion, if you have a sane mind, that Jesus rose from the dead, because there is, there, there is no other logical explanation. And he said, any jury faced with this evidence would conclude that Jesus is alive. Others like Frank Morrison who, who set off to disprove the resurrection, understanding if he could prove that the resurrection didn't happen, then it would be the end of Christianity. And he set off to, to write this book to disprove the resurrection. And as he gathered the evidence, he had to come to this incredible turnaround in his own life and accept the message of the gospel. And he wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? And the first chapter, I think, in the book is the book that refused to be written. And he said, and as I looked and sought to disprove the resurrection, I had to acknowledge it was true. And the resurrection validates the message, the ministry and the identity of Jesus. And yet also, let us understand that the resurrection was for us. He rose for you. He, rose, he was raised for you. His resurrection life is for you. The cross is a gift. The grave is empty. And is defeated. And this also is a gift. His life is a gift. His resurrection power is a gift. Romans 4, 24, I think we can put up on the screen, says this. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Let's consider that for a moment. He was delivered over to death for our sins. We know that, yes. Who knows that? Who can say, I believe he was delivered over to death for my sins. Thanks be to God. And do we understand yet, he was raised to life for our justification. We have been justified. It's 500 years this year and many are celebrating. Maybe we should celebrate in a more special way the Reformation. Martin Luther, who I think in studying Galatians came to his own realization of the gospel of justification by faith alone, which means that that through no works of our own, we have been saved. And he he wrote his 95 theses and, and nailed them on the church doors in Wittenberg. He ultimately... Uh, lost his life for the cause, but set forth into Europe and the world a, a revolution and a reformation that understands that we've been saved by grace and by faith alone. Thanks be to God. And here's the truth of Luther's treaty is that we have been justified by Christ. This means that, that all our sin and our shame and our garbage has been taken away on the cross. 
And yet Christ's perfect life has come into our lives if we accept him. And we are now deemed to be righteous in the sight of God. Not because of our righteousness, but because of his righteousness. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It is in Christ that we are justified. It is that we are in Christ and that his resurrection life is in us. That God can look at us and not see us, but see the Son who is altogether righteous. And we are deemed the righteousness of God. This is what it means to be fully justified. Not merely forgiven of our sins, but found righteous in God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, can we say in him? In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Can I hear a wow? Wow, it is wow. That in him, God would see me in him. And I can only be in him because he's alive. Hello? I can't be in him if he's dead. There's nothing to be in. But if he's alive, I can be in him. And in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That he would take away all my sin and all my shame and allow me to come in him. The one that ever lives. And as God looks, he sees not me, but he sees him. That Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. My friends, this is the intimacy of Easter. It means his death was and is for you. It means his resurrection was and is for you. Romans chapter 6 says, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. If we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. He died for you and he was raised for you. There's this great word in theology called imputed. And it means assigned. It means that, that our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross. That somehow God was able to accept his life for our lives. That my sin was laid upon him even though he didn't commit them. And yet they were imputed to him that God would accept his life as a sacrifice for my life. But his life is also imputed into me. It is assigned to me that I can live in him and be seen righteous in him. This is the power of the resurrection. And only when we enter in to the truth that we have been forgiven by the cross and that his life is for us and in us, can we really know the intimacy of Easter. What a message. What a saviour. Hallelujah. What a saviour. My friends, Easter is more than the payment of a debt. And who's grateful for the payment of a debt? It is the beginning of a new life in Christ. It's not really a cosmic event that we are best to observe or applaud at a distance. Although the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it is intended to be personal and for the remainder of our time I'd I'd like us to 
go to John's Gospel, and it's not going to come up on the screens, but if you have a Bible, why not turn with me or a device to John chapter 20? And we're going to see this idea that Easter is intended to be intimate. I find it incredible uh, that Jesus, the Bible says, appeared to 500 people at one time. It's recorded in Corinthians. And yet it doesn't tell us about that event. It doesn't make the pages of the Gospels. We don't read in the Gospels heaven's celebration. Can we glimpse or imagine for a moment? I, I don't know if we can, but can you imagine the roar of praise when Christ is raised in heaven? The thousands upon thousands, the 10,000 times 10,000, the angels. Can you imagine how fast they're flying through heaven? Can you imagine the glory? Can you imagine the sound? The roar of praise as Christ is raised from the dead. I, I can only begin to imagine what was going on in heaven when Christ is raised from the dead, but we don't find that recorded in the Gospels. Don't you think, like Revelation, God might have given somebody a window that they could record, just a glimpse, bring someone up to see heaven's party and write it down, but it's not there. And you go to John's Gospel, and you see him appearing to three individuals, to Mary, to Thomas, to Peter, and this says to me, Easter is intended to be intimate. There's a message here beyond the stories that says God wants to invade your world. That the resurrection is for you. Not for the person next to you, it's for you. Not for the masses across the world, not for the billions. Well, it is for the billions, but only because it's for every single one. Only because it's for you, the resurrection is for you. And we see it, I... I cannot help but read these stories of Mary and Thomas and Peter and understand that, if if you will and understand me, I am Mary. Don't quote me on that. (laughs) I am Thomas. I am Peter. And as we journey through this, why don't we put ourselves there and understand the intimacy of Easter. That Easter is for you. That Christ rose for you. He died for you, but he rose again. For you, that his life is for your life. The intimacy of Easter. Firstly, do you know Mary's intimacy? He called her by name. This is what the Bible says in John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not still understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary, verse 11, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I do not know where they have put him. We'll pause there just for now. 
The Bible records that Mary Magdalene had had seven demons cast out of her. It's one of those many places in scripture where you read it and think, I could use a little more information here. But we understand this, I think, that Mary had a story to tell. I don't know what had gone on. I I don't know how she'd become afflicted. I don't know what mistakes she'd made. I don't know what circumstances had been against her as she'd grown up. But she had seven demons cast out of her. Her life had been turned around when she met Jesus. She'd been set free and she joined the group that traveled along supporting the disciples, not among the 12, but those that traveled, some of the ladies that helped to fund the ministry financially. And and a week earlier, she had witnessed her Lord and, and her hero coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey in the cult of a donkey to the shouts and proclamation of Hosanna. She'd been there and I imagine Mary laughing and rejoicing as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, shouting with the crowd, cheering, seeing her Lord being adulated, being adored. But the week, the week that plays out, this horror beyond imagination. On Thursday, Jesus is arrested and he's spoken of it, he's alluded to it, he He said it would happen, but they never really believed it, and it happened so fast. And he's arrested, and he's taken away, and the disciples disperse. They're nowhere to be seen, and Mary's in and around, kind of wanting to get near, but knowing she's utterly helpless to do anything. He's in the hands of the high priest. He's in the hands of Pilate. There's a so-called trial. It's a mock trial. And Jesus, who can speak up and say something, says nothing. And she remembers him saying, for this cause came I into the world to give my life as a ransom for many. Is, is he really talking about going to the cross? And before they know it, he's being flogged with whips, with glass and stone embedded in them. And his back is being ripped out to shreds. And she's in the crowd trying not to be noticed, but seeing and turning away and wincing. And the disfiguration of her hero. And he's forced to carry this massive cross and he stumbles and and he gets there and they lay him down and and she sees the nails be driven through his wrist and his feet and and, and they they hoik up this, this cross and they drop into the slot in the ground, the agony. The bones being dislocated in his body, the crown of thorns pressed into his head and Mary's there. And the sky goes dark and He cries out from the cross, it is finished. And he breathes his last and she can't believe it's actually happened. And no crucified person should ever be buried in a tomb, but but a brave man comes and asks for the body and and, and the ladies track it and they observe and they, they go and see and they, they see this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that, that is prepared for somebody else. But Jesus' body, they see, is put in there and, and there's this huge stone disc with, with a slot and it's, and it's rolled into the slot and it sinks down and it covers the tomb. And it's the end of Friday and Saturday is the Sabbath and they know it's against the, the Jewish law to go near to the tomb and they just have to wait the agony of Saturday. She can't think of anything else. But they gather some spices and some things to go to visit and anoint the body and it's just a whirlwind. It's one of those, you can't imagine that this would ever happen. No 
comprehension of what should happen next in our life. And, and then 4 a.m., you know, she's, she doesn't sleep a wink that night. And just at the, the moment, it's kind of before dawn, but she, she can get there when the dawn breaks. It's okay. And they set off. It's like 4 o'clock in the morning. And they get there and, and the stone, like this, I mean, it says another gospel, as they went, that some of the ladies, they were saying, how are we going to move the stone? That you can't move this stone out of its slot and the stone's out of its slot and the body's gone. And they go and find the disciples and Peter and and John, they race to the tomb and Mary's there and they look and it says, John says uh, that he believed, but he says they didn't understand that he had to rise. I don't know what he believed exactly, believed something. But they head back. But Mary lingers. She stays around. Maybe in hope, maybe in desperation, maybe in bewilderment. Maybe she just thinks if she hangs around, she might find someone who knows something. But here's what's great. She's not in the 12. She's not a relative. She's not a leader. She's not trained. She's not religious. She's not qualified whatsoever to be the first person that Jesus appears to. But then verse 14 says this. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned Towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Does this tell us anything beyond that he appeared to Mary? It tells me something. It tells me that the resurrection's for me the unqualified, the nobodies. Why? Why would he appear to Mary first? Well, why is he born in Bethlehem? Why? Why? Why do they tell the shepherds? Why does God keep showing up in unlikely places to unlikely people? Is it not that we would know that the resurrection is for us? The undeserving, the unmerited, the unqualified. I don't know, maybe a here today and you're aware of how unqualified you are. Maybe you're you're here and you see people raising their hands and you think, I'm too unworthy to enter in. Let me tell you, if we learn anything from this story, it's that he would come and speak your name. Mary. He speaks to her. He appears to her. The intimacy of Easter is for you. The intimacy of Easter that he comes for you, no matter how far away from God you may feel, he came for you and he was raised for you. Do you know, secondly, Thomas's intimacy? He called him to believe. After Mary, Jesus appears to the disciples in person. There's this appearing to Mary and, and he says, go, tell them, tell my brothers that I'm ascending to the Father. And she goes and tells them. And then later that day in the evening, I'm like, what, what's he doing all day? He's risen from the dead. But it says he waited until evening. 
You know, I thought, did he just pop up into heaven and, and just give, you know, have a, but it says, I haven't yet ascended to the Father, so it can't be that. I'm like, what's he doing? But in the evening, he appears to the disciples. He, he comes in among them and they know it's him. But Thomas, Thomas is out. Thomas is not there. It, I don't know. Maybe he was sent to get a Domino's. I, I don't know. I mean, talk about bad timing. Jesus turns up and he gets back and they tell him, but he wasn't there. You know, Thomas gets a bad press. That's what it says in verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I'm not sure any of them believed until they saw him. Why give Thomas a bad rap? Thomas is a good guy. A few chapters earlier in John, Lazarus is raised from the dead, but before he's raised, Lazarus has died and Jesus tells him that he's died. And Thomas, however misplaced it was, because it wasn't actually the appropriate response, but he says, let's go and die with Lazarus too. Now that, that was a silly idea, but you've got to admire the guy's commitment. Now this is a genuine guy. This is no slouch. It's like, look, if the right thing to do is go die, well, let's go die. I'm ready to die. You know, most of us would say, I'm too young to die. Thomas goes, let's do it. Let's die together. And Jesus goes, no, no, I'm about to raise him up. Steady on, Thomas. Your time will come. Thomas is a good guy. Jesus in John 14 says, you know where I am going, speaking of heaven. And, and Thomas pipes up and says, uh, Lord, we don't know, actually. I find it hugely refreshing. You know, Jesus speaks the parables uh, in Luke on the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. And then he says, have, I, have you understood everything I've been teaching you? And they all say, yes. And you look at it and go, you've got no idea. And Jesus says, you know where I'm going. And they're going, yes, Lord, we know. And none of them have got a clue. But Thomas goes, sorry, Lord, we haven't got a clue what you're talking about. I like, Thomas is a genuine guy. And maybe he just says, look, I'll believe it when I see it. Because he doesn't want to get his hopes up. Maybe because he's just the real deal. But a week later, the Bible says in the next verse, verse 26 of John 20, a week later the disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace, peace be with you. And then he turned to Thomas and said, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed, John says, many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not recorded in this book, but they are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And check this, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Let me say that again. And by believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, it is by believing that we have life in his name. It is by believing we experience the intimacy of Easter. It is when we believe that his resurrection power comes and invades our world. It is by believing that we have life in his name. And I think Jesus rebukes him because he wants him to have life. He says, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Why? Because by believing, he can have life in his name. And this resurrection gift of life that is now to be imputed into Thomas, if he only believes, he can have it all. And my dad wrestled. I'm in a family. I've got one sister. And my mum, my sister, myself, we all got saved within about... 10, uh, 12 months of each other. My dad had been brought up in an atheist family and, and he was a scientist and, and he, he, he just refused to believe. But he, he's a, a really kind of easygoing sort of character. He wasn't a militant atheist. He just said, look, if you want to do your thing, do your thing, but it's not for me. I'm never going to, I don't believe there is a God. I don't believe there's anything after when we die. I, you know, I, it's fine. You do your thing if you want to pray. And, and then we started going to church. We got saved and, and he came along. You know, we kind of drag him along at Christmas, drag him along at Easter. And then he goes, look, if it helps the family, you know, like kind of, you know, going out to the garden center or it's like, you know, I'll, I'll come. And he started coming for two years. He came to church every Sunday. He wasn't a believer. But he sang the songs, he got to know the songs. Everybody around him thought he was a Christian, but he wasn't. (laughs) He never raised a hand in worship because he wasn't a worshiper. But people just thought he was a guy who had an issue with raising his hands in worship. There's plenty of them. And then one of the leaders of the church took him out for a drink and he said, David, what are you waiting for? He said, listen, he said, if you're waiting to see something you haven't yet seen, you ain't going to see. You've seen everything there is to see. You've got to make a decision. You can't stand on the fence for the rest of your life. You either need to accept or reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've got a decision to make. My dad went back from that evening. He didn't sleep for three nights. He wrestled. And then he called us into the dining room and, and he said, look, this is what Andrew said to me. And I haven't been able to sleep since and I've been thinking about it. And he said, I wanted to tell you, this has got nothing to do with my heart. This is completely a non-emotional. This is just a decision of the head. But faced with that challenge, I cannot, I cannot deny Jesus. So I have to accept Jesus. So I make a cold-blooded decision <laughs> to accept Jesus. And when he said that, he began to weep. His cold-blooded decision. He made a decision to believe And he received the life of Christ. And his hard heart melted. And something came in to his world. And I have a photo of him on that night when he gave his life to Jesus. And there was a brightness in his eye because he chose to believe. Sometimes it's a decision to believe. I want to say to some people here today, do you know Thomas's intimacy? He's called you to believe. You know, some of the young people in the house, you've grown up in, in Christian families. And you reach that age where you've got to work out. Are you really going to believe this for yourselves? I understand that's really important. You make that journey. You have to make that journey. But let me tell you this. Ultimately, cynicism and doubt have got a death wish in them. You'll never get anything but barrenness out of cynicism and doubt. But when you believe, you will receive life. And sometimes we have to say there are things I don't understand, but there are things that I do believe and I'm going to go with what I believe. 
And we make a decision. We choose to believe. And Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, stop doubting and believe. And he'd come to somebody here today and say, stop doubting. It's a choice. Some people, they position themselves as devil's advocate. And that's what they are. Because they allow the death wish of cynicism to come into their lives. I'm not saying that we throw our brains to one side, that we don't engage intellectually with the reality of the scriptures or the gospel that comes upon you have to make a decision to believe. And those who believe will receive life. This is the intimacy of Easter that we make a decision to say, Jesus, I don't understand all things, but I believe in you. And I believe you died for me and I believe you rose for me. And in so doing, you receive the life of the resurrection of Christ. It becomes yours. And thirdly, do you know Peter's intimacy? He called him afresh. Now after Thomas records the disciples going out fishing, you know, he appears to Thomas and then the next story, Jesus appears to the disciples, but they're on the Sea of Galilee. And there's a backstory here because Peter, Peter had been a fisherman. Peter got called as a fisherman. And Peter had been called by Jesus to be part of what's called the Talmudin, to be, to be a Talmud, to be a disciple, to be a follower. You know, rabbis, normally they would be followed by the best of the best of the best who'd been groomed through Hebrew school, who'd learned the Torah, the ways of the Jewish people. And then they would be able to assign themselves to, to a rabbi. They would come and they would ask the question, can I follow you? And if the rabbi thought that they had the potential to be like them, they would say, come follow me. If they didn't think they were going to cut the mustard, they'd say, you've studied the Torah well. You've applied yourself well to the things of God. Now go apply your family trade. And it was a kind way of saying, sorry, son, you didn't make the cut. And Jesus breaks with all protocol. This rabbi comes forth with a new interpretation of of the... The scriptures, a new interpretation of the law and the prophets that brings grace and brings freedom. And instead of, of having a group behind him, he goes and he picks his group. And instead of them coming to him and say, can I follow you? He says, come, follow me. And Peter, who'd flunked out somewhere along the Jewish schooling, he, he gets chosen and he makes it into the Talmud. And the whole thing about being a Talmud or a follower is you have to follow the rabbi. Do what the rabbi does. If the rabbi does it, you do it. If the rabbi eats, you eat. If, if the rabbi walks on water, you get out of the boat and walk on water. Hello? Follow, 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 follow. And after the Last Supper, Jesus says, every one of you will fall away. <coughs> Forgive me, that's not the word that he uses. Yes, he does. Anyone, all of you will fall away. And Peter pipes up and says, I won't, even if everybody else does, I won't. And Jesus says, Peter, you will. Tonight, even tonight, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me. Three times. And Jesus gets arrested and Peter's tracking him at a distance and he goes to the courtyard of the high priest and the servant girl of the high priest clocks him and he's warming himself by a charcoal fire and she says, you were with that Nazarene and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. She sees him again and she says to the others, this fellow's one of them, but the Bible says he denies it. And then the others get wind of it that are in the courtyard. And they say, you're a Galilean, you're one of them. And the Bible says he calls down curses on himself and says, I do not know that man. And at that moment, he hears the cock crowing a second time. You see, Peter 
has done what no Talmud should ever do. He's called to follow and he fails to follow. In denying the rabbi, he shows that he cannot follow. He cannot. He refused to go where Jesus was going. He did what no self-respected Talmud should ever do. But then here, Jesus comes and again, we don't, we don't learn about the greeting to the masses. We home in on the individual and it speaks to us to say Easter is for us personally. And Peter, he turns to the disciples, he says, I'm going out fishing. And, and they, they say, oh, we'll come as well. And then Jesus shows up. It's really early in the morning. They've caught nothing all night. And Jesus, the Bible says, calls out from the shore, hey, friends, you got any fish? They go, no. He says, throw your net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. And the Bible says, when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because it was so full of fish. And at that moment, John gets deja vu because when they were called, this is what Jesus did. The very day they were called, three years ago, this, this was the miracle Jesus did. And he goes, it's the Lord. And Peter dives in the water and he swims and, and then we pick up the story and Jesus has already prepared another fire. It's the same fire. It's a charcoal fire. You look at, at the Greek words, it's exactly the same type of fire and Peter's by the fire and he's denied him three times and, and he's done what no self-respecting Talmud should ever do. But then the rabbi does what no self-respecting rabbi should ever do. And he gives him another chance. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he says. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. My friend, do you know Peter's intimacy? He called him afresh. Lamar, would you come and help me as we come into land today? Think about it. The resurrection, it's for all of us that are unqualified, unworthy, a long way off. And as he called Mary's name, he calls your name. The resurrection is for those who maybe are doubting or are struggling to commit. And he'd come and say, stop doubting and believe. Because those believing that believe have life in his name. And he comes to those who've messed up, those who've drifted away, those who maybe have denied Jesus. Maybe not by words, but by actions and lifestyle. Those who once walked well with God. Maybe you find yourself in that place today. Maybe you are Peter. Maybe once you walked well with the Savior. And somewhere along the last season of time, you've lost your way. But Jesus doesn't turn away. He doesn't, he doesn't in his resurrected glory deem himself too great for Peter he goes after Peter and he prepares a fire and, and he asks him three times and he cancels out the three denials and he, he calls him afresh and I want to say the resurrection is for you you may feel a long way off but it's for you today it's that you would enter in afresh today that you would receive afresh the gift of Easter that Christ died for you and Christ rose for you
I wonder if we can pray. Invite the musicians to come and join me. In an atmosphere of prayer, why don't we stand to our feet together? I don't mind really today what response you make, but I would encourage you to make a response if you need to make a response. My prayer is that every person in this place would appropriate afresh the life of Christ, would know that Jesus was raised for you, that He not only died for you, He was raised for you, that His life is for you. And maybe there are some here and you've never responded to Jesus and you hear Him call out your name today. That He would invite you to enter in to receive the message of forgiveness to receive the life of His resurrection into your world. Maybe there are some who've been doubting and you need to respond and say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. I believe and help my unbelief. We come afresh and receive the life of the resurrection. Maybe there are some who you've lost your way, but today there's a chance to recommit, to say like Peter, Lord, I love you. Lord, I come and renew my vow to you that I would serve you afresh in this season. And the band are going to lead us in a song. And part of the song says, the resurrected King is resurrecting me. And as we sing this with faith, receive his life where you are. And if you need to step out of your seat and come down the front and stand in response somehow to the message, whatever that might mean for you, do whatever you need to do today. You need to get on your knees where you are and say, oh God, I receive your life afresh. Do whatever you need to do today. But as the band lead us, let's receive afresh the life of Christ. Lord, we say thank you today. Thank you for the cross, but thank you also for the resurrection. And thank you for the intimacy of Easter. That this message is that we might enter in fully. And I pray, help us even these, in these moments to enter in fully to receive afresh your forgiveness and to receive afresh the fullness of your resurrection life. Holy Spirit, come and breathe in this place. Come and blow in this place. Come and renew hearts. We speak to every dead place to come alive that your name might be honoured as we head out from this place today. We hail you, Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords.